Hello, welcome to the Sentencing Council podcast, Sentencing Explained. My name is Peter McClellan, and I am the chair of the council. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Joining us today is Sally Dowling, the New South Wales Director of Public Prosecutions. Sally has had a lengthy career as a barrister and prosecutor before taking up her current role. It is not often that you get to hear the director speak about the role of prosecutors. We are grateful that she has agreed to talk with us today. Welcome, Sally. Thank you, Peter. It's great to be here. Sally, uh, first of all, I want to just ask you a little bit about your job. Can you help us to understand what your role involves and how you go about um, completing your tasks? Sure. The Director of Public Prosecutions um, is a statutory role and I'm appointed under the Director of Public Prosecutions Act. Uh, I'm the head of the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions, which is the independent prosecuting authority uh, for serious offences in New South Wales. As the Director, I'm responsible for uh, instituting and maintaining all serious prosecutions in New South Wales, uh, whether they proceed to sentence or proceed to trial, uh, and if there's a conviction, to sentence after trial. Now, I think your office has both barristers and solicitors, if I can put it that way, uh, under your direction. Is that right? That's right. It's a it's an unusual um, setup that we have here in New South Wales, and it's uh, <clears throat> virtually unique across the common law world. We have 1,000 staff, we have 750 solicitors and 100 Crown prosecutors who are barristers who are uh, appointed under a statutory appointment process under the Crown Prosecutors Act, but they act exclusively uh, as Crown prosecutors and appear on my behalf in the courts of New South Wales. Now, just to be sure, so everyone understands, I don't think your um, people do any primary investigation work. That's all done by the police or others, is that right? That's correct. The OTPP has no investigative function. Uh, We receive um, referrals from the the police. When police are the charging authority for most of the offences which we prosecute, but we also take, uh, we also prosecute matters that are charged by the ICAC and other regulatory bodies who have um, a criminal offence charging function. From time to time, there is the need for further investigations to take place after charging, and we refer those back to the investigating authorities. We also receive referrals from the coroner, from the coroner's court, where the coroner is satisfied that there is evidence uh, that would establish that a, a homicide has taken place to the criminal standard. Um, and then we work with police to conduct any further investigations that are required. And do you have the authority to terminate prosecution? Is that part of your role? Yes. As director, I have the authority both to lay charges ex officio uh, if it becomes apparent that um, a further charge is required and also to terminate proceedings uh, and direct no further proceedings. Now, you said that you're responsible for the prosecution of serious crimes. Can you just help us to understand what 
falls into the serious category. Generally, there are two types of offence in New South Wales, those that are prosecuted summarily in the local court and those that are proceeded with on indictment and proceed to the district court or the Supreme Court. In broad terms, the more serious the offence, the more likely it is to be uh, prosecuted on indictment in either the district court or the Supreme Court. There are some offences uh, that can be dealt with either summarily or uh, by way of indictment, and there's a process of election uh, which is conducted by the police in the first instance and sometimes by my office as well. Right, so the police might decide it should go on indictment, but you have the power Correct. to say no, it should go summarily. Yes, yeah. that's right. Um, well, then, our primary purpose in this podcast is to talk about sentencing. But um, first of all, I suppose we should establish the ground rules. Uh, your prosecutors would obviously prosecute uh, on indictment in the District Court or the Supreme Court, where trials would mostly be conducted with a jury. Would that be right? That's right. Although there is the um, ability for the court to determine that a, a trial might proceed by way of judge alone, um, that application can be made uh, on on the motion of the court or the parties, uh, and the Crown no longer has the ability to veto that decision. That's a decision that lies in the hands of the trial judge. Let's assume we've got a jury trial and your prosecutor prosecutes and obtains or persuades the jury to convict. Uh, and then it falls for the judge to sentence. What's the role of the prosecutor once the jury has returned a guilty verdict uh, in assisting the judge with respect to sentence? The principal uh, function of the prosecutor at that stage of the proceedings is to assist the judge to make the factual findings necessary to, to constitute the foundation of the sentencing process. Um, as your listeners are probably aware, critical part of the sentencing process is working out how serious the particular offence is as an example of that type of offence. For example, if it's a, um, a, a driving case causing death, it's important that the judge uh, gauges the seriousness of that instance of dangerous driving. Um, so the prosecutor will make submissions as to what the appropriate facts are to be found and then we'll make submissions addressing the objective seriousness of that offence and then we'll make submissions on the subjective circumstances of the offender where they are known to the prosecutor. The subjective factors can just help us to understand what fall into that bracket. The two pillars of sentencing are the objective seriousness of the offence and the subjective circumstances of the offender and they need to be both taken into account in an instinctive synthesis manner um, by the sentencing judge. So the circumstances, the subjective case of the offender will be their personal background, the reason that they committed the offence perhaps, whether they have a mental illness, whether they have um, a substance abuse disorder, the motivation that they have for, for offending in this way, their criminal history, uh, whether they were on bail or on parole at the time that they committed the offence and matters of that kind. So the prosecutors address the judge in relation to those issues. Uh, does the prosecutor have any role in suggesting to the judge the penalty that 
the court should impose? No. In fact, um, there's high court authority that that's an inappropriate submission for a prosecutor to make. The court, the prosecutor will inform the court of the relevant um, maximum penalty and if there is a standard non-parole period, what that is, and will assist the court with uh, the provision of information relevant to the sentencing exercise, um, including relevant authorities and examples of previous sentences that have been imposed in similar cases. However, the prosecutor will not suggest a particular uh, number um, if it's a custodial sentence. Can the prosecutor suggest that the sentence should be a severe one, for example, or should be a light one? Not in those terms. However, the prosecutor may make a submission that says this, for example, this is a very serious example of an offence of its kind. The maximum penalty is life in this case. In other cases, uh, the sentence that's been imposed has been, for example, 20 years, and we would say that this is a more serious example of this offence than those previous cases, and then leave it to the judge to work out. Now, um, there are, of course, various alternatives when sentencing offenders, some of which don't involve custodial terms. Now, given that you're prosecuting the more serious offences, I assume that in many cases where you are prosecuting, the result will be a, a term of imprisonment. But is it open to the prosecutor to suggest some other alternative should be adopted? Yes. Um, prosecutors have um, a, a very broad discretion as to the submissions that they uh, are able to make, uh, and I don't seek to direct prosecutors in relation to the submissions they make in individual cases. In every case, um, Section 5 of the, of the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act applies and a court must not sentence an offender to imprisonment unless the court is satisfied that no penalty other than imprisonment is, is appropriate. And on occasion, uh, the prosecutor will concede that that threshold, that Section 5 threshold, Definitely has not been passed. Yeah. Well, that's uh, in a, a capsule uh, what might happen if there's been a trial with a jury. Now, there are many cases where uh, the offender, uh, once charged, will plead guilty and comes before a court uh, just for sentence. What's the role of the prosecutor in those circumstances? It's similar to the role that they play after trial. Um, the first step in the sentencing exercise is that factual finding uh, process, which I referred to before. Very often after a plea of guilty, whether or not that has um, is preceded by a plea negotiation process, frequently there will be what's called a statement of agreed facts where the offender and the prosecutor agree on a version of the facts uh, to be given to the sentencing judge to assist the sentencing judge in finding the facts. Um, that process of settling the agreed facts is a principled uh, process and must be based on the evidence that is available to the prosecutor. It's not a matter of generating a, a fictional story that suits either party. In the majority of sentence matters, we have agreed facts, either it, that will cover all of the facts of the offending or a large part of them. If agreement cannot be reached uh, between the prosecutor and the offender, then we will have a disputed facts hearing, which is like a mini trial where the judge will be required to uh, work out what happened 
in relation to either a small part of the offence or a large part. Are they common or, or, or rare? Um, they're regular, but we um, we try to negotiate the facts um, for for the obvious reason that it saves a lot of court time. Saves a lot of judge time. Yeah. A lot of judge time. Yeah. And it's one of the benefits of a plea of guilty. Yes. Um, and then having established the facts, I assume a written document is tendered to the judge. That's correct. And the judge is then uh, able to sentence in accordance with those agreed facts. That's right. And it's important that that document is, in fact, adopted by the offender um, mm -hmm. and signed by the prosecutor and the offender and where the offender is legally represented by their legal representative um, because on occasion people do seek to withdraw their yeah. plea. And that no doubt causes all sorts of problems for the system if that happens. It does. Um, and then we, we go into a, a, an application for withdrawal of plea, which is quite yeah. a complex yeah. uh, application. Well, we won't go down that path, but having uh, provided the judge with the facts, then I assume the role of the prosecutor with respect to the ultimate sentence is the same as following a trial. That's right. Um, if the offender goes into evidence or leads evidence in their case, for example, um, frequently there is psychological or psychiatric evidence led by the offender as to the state of mind or that they had at the time of the offending, any mental illness or other mental health problem that they may be labouring under at the time of sentencing. Um, it, where that evidence is led, the prosecutor may choose to cross-examine those witnesses and so there may be that um, that process may be engaged in at a sentence hearing as well. In times past, I think it's not uncommon for the offender to give evidence at the sentencing hearing. That's fallen away in recent times, has it? It is relatively uncommon for offenders to give evidence. Um, often an account can be provided uh, to the court through the psychologist or the psychiatrist or even the pre-sentence report author. Um, and sometimes offenders will write a letter to the court um, which in which they express their remorse uh, and give an account of themselves. Um, there's always the risk for the offender if they go into evidence that they will be cross-examined by the prosecutor more broadly and that they could, uh, in fact, uh, say things that may not be advantageous for their case. Now, you're the Director of Public Prosecutions now, but I assume your journey, professional journey, has involved you in many cases, both as a prosecutor and defender, is that right? Yes. Um, I, in fact, started life as a commercial lawyer um, and I spent five years at the bar um, doing commercial and equity work. I was appointed as a Crown Prosecutor in 2002 and I spent 16 years as a Crown Prosecutor. Um, 12 years were spent doing trials um, in the District Court and in the Supreme Court and then I moved into the Appeals Unit at the ODPP. So the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions has a dedicated appellate team with about eight to ten Crown Prosecutors in it and the balance of our prosecutors are doing trial work. Um, I then went back to the private bar in 2019 uh, where I did prosecution and defence work. What attracted you to criminal law as opposed to the uh, civil law where you started? What, what, what provoked the change? It was rather serendipitous. I had a friend who was a Crown Prosecutor who suggested that I should interview and 
I was interested in a challenge. Um, I'd also had first of my children at that point in time, and I was actually offered the first role as a part-time Crown Prosecutor, um, which was which suited me for my work-life balance. Um, so I actually was part-time for 14 years and then went full-time when my kids were a little bit older. I assume both when you were at the bar privately and also as a prosecutor, uh, many times you've addressed on sentence uh, following a trial and also after a plea of guilty. Yes, that's the case. And I've also um, appeared in many, many sentence appeals in the Court of Criminal Appeal. Can I talk to you now about an important component of the criminal law? Perhaps become, it's become more important in recent years than it once was. Prosecutions used to be seen as uh, the state uh, prosecuting an offence against the state uh, and the role of the victim. In, in the crime was not emphasised in a way which it perhaps is today. Can you help us to understand that part of the criminal justice system? Sure. Look, it remains the case that the um, prosecutor appears on behalf of the state um, and the, the victims of crime, whilst extremely important people in the criminal justice process and in the sentencing process, are not parties. Um, so it is the overriding duty of the prosecutor is to present the case fairly, both on behalf of the state of New South Wales, but also uh, bearing in mind the obligation of fairness to the accused or the offender um, and the obligation of candour to the court. So Previously, victims of crime or complainants had a lesser role to play, but over the last few decades, there is increasing and um, an important recognition of the fact that they have a critical role to play in, in the sentencing process. And the introduction of victim impact statements and the ability of the victim to be heard on sentence in presentation of the victim impact statement uh, has been a very important um, step towards recognising the role of the victim in sentencing and the importance of having their voice heard. What's the role of the prosecutor then in relation to the victim's impact statement? There are fairly um, strict rules about what can and, and can't go into a victim impact statement. So when we have... Um, when we're preparing a matter to sentence, my prosecutors will ask the victim whether they would like to make a victim impact statement and will assist them to draft that in a way that it doesn't uh, it doesn't infringe the, the rules about what's admissible. So we will help the victim write that statement, um, always giving the victim primary agency in that process. We will then ask the victim uh, or the complainant whether they would like to come and read that out in person or present their victim impact statement in person. Sometimes, uh, very frequently, they will want to do that. Sometimes they will feel too distressed or not want to be involved, in which case we would tender the statement. Are others, relatives, allowed to read the statement for the victim? Yeah. Yes, they are. And uh, in homicide cases, the family of the deceased um, are now able to give their victim statements. Yes, so that you might get multiple statements in a homicide. Yes. And uh, if uh, there's more than one victim in relation to a particular crime,
crime. I assume each of those persons can give a statement. That's correct. You also, I think, have a role in supporting victims separate from helping them provide a victim we impact do. statement. What's um, that role? It's a really important part of our role. Um, we have a witness assistance service in-house at the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions and they are highly trained social workers who have a specialist expertise in supporting victims throughout the criminal justice process. So once we get a matter from police, um, we will assign a witness assistance officer to that matter and they will meet and uh, work with the victim of crime and the victim's family in order to support them through the process. They'll keep them company at court, they'll help explain the court process to them, they will be involved in the drafting of the, of the victim impact statement as appropriate, um, and they will be there at sentence to help support them. And once the proceedings are finished, do you continue to have any role with, with the victim or is that, does that bring to an end your involvement with the victim? That brings to an end our formal involvement. Um, necessarily, being involved with victims in criminal matters often um, means that you have a very long-term relationship with those people. Um, and certainly I'm still in contact with a lot of the victims and the families from the prosecutions that I've appeared in throughout the years. They'll be going back some time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, the next issue I suppose we need to talk about <coughs> is the capacity of the Crown to dispute the sentence which a judge might have imposed. Uh, I mean, I take it from time to time a judge will hand down a sentence which your office and ultimately you uh, think may be too light. Um, what role does the Crown, through you as the DPP, have to play if that's the case? In limited circumstances, the Crown uh, will appeal a sentence if it appears that there's been an error in the uh, delivery of the sentence or in the reasons for sentence. Uh, and if there, even if there hasn't been a, what's, what we call a clear error, it may be that we feel that the sentence is just too short for the offending um, in question. And in that case, we will appeal to the Court of Criminal Appeal to have that sentence uh, set aside and to have the offender re-sentenced by the Court of Criminal Appeal. And the High Court has repeatedly said that Crown appeals should be rare and should be generally brought to correct, uh, correct errors made in sentencing processes in the lower courts and for the purpose of providing guidance to the lower courts. I think that issue was originally the subject of some controversy uh, as between New South Wales and the High Court, but that was settled back, I think, in the 50s or 60s, I think. That's right, and um, it's, it's since then the consistent message from the High Court has been that the, uh, there should be a high degree of restraint uh, on the part of the Director of Public Prosecutions in seeking to have sentences increased. So what's the process then in your office? An individual prosecutor goes to court and the judge sentences the offender and the prosecutor thinks that might be too low or significantly too low. How does your office function then to work out whether or not it should be taken to the Court of Criminal Appeal? So the rules of court of the Court of Criminal Appeal now require that any Crown Appeal be brought within 
28 days of the sentence being handed down. So that's a fairly short time frame. A prosecutor will appear on sentence, the sentence will be handed down. If the prosecutor uh, considers that sentence to be manifestly inadequate and or to be affected by uh, serious error, then he or she will prepare a report to director's chambers um, and that will come up. I've got about 10 solicitors who work in my chambers. It'll be, um, that report will be considered by one of my chambers solicitors who will then refer it to me or one of my deputy directors to direct an appeal. So you have 10 solicitors or thereabouts working directly to you. Yes. And then you've got some deputies working directly to you as well. How many of those I've do you have? I've got three deputy directors. Um, right. Who and are, do they have authority on occasion delegated by you to make that decision? Or they is do. it always doesn't have to land on your table every time? No. So uh, the three deputy directors have each got delegated authority to direct Crown Appeals. Right. And uh, I should have asked you this earlier, but do you actually go to court yourself now or does your role confine you to the desk as it were? I don't go to court as much as I would like to, um, but I do have a high court practice and I appear on occasion in the Court of Criminal Appeal. And what about your deputies? Do they regularly appear? Similarly, they, they also appear in the CCA and in the high court. Right. Um, and so you, when you go to court to argue the appeal, uh, it's essential, I assume, that you can point to error as opposed to just saying the sentence is too light. Is that, is that the way it works? There are two types of appeals. One that um, pleads patent error, which is actual error in the reasoning, and uh, the other type of appeal that, um, that pleads latent error, which is really the sentence is just too lenient for the, this um, offender and this offending. Um, and sometimes it's a combination of both of those. But in every case, the sentence has to be too low. So a, a notice of appeal is filed and it will identify the error if, if there is specific error being relied upon. And the Crown will uh, prepare sub written submissions in support of that appeal, which are then filed and served on the offender. Um, and the offender will put on their written submissions and there'll be an oral hearing in the Court of Criminal Appeal and after which there'll be a judgment from the court. Um, if the Crown still thinks there's a problem with the sentence, can you take it to the High Court? Yes, um, very infrequently the Crown will um, or, or can appeal from a decision of the Court of Criminal Appeal to the High Court. Um, again, the, the principles of restraint are, are critical, um, but on occasion, the Crown has, has applied to the High Court in sentencing matters. Now, can I then ask you a little bit about, or a little bit more about your own career? You told us of the years that you were involved as a prosecutor and we talked about many trials, but I take it you've been involved in many difficult trials uh, and many where serious crime has been committed. Perhaps someone's been killed or someone's been seriously hurt. And that would be true of all your prosecutors from time to time. They'd be involved with really serious cases. Um, are you careful to um, care for the health of your prosecutors who have to confront these issues in their daily work lives? Absolutely. It's, it's a very significant consideration in the way we uh, manage 
the office of the DPP. Vicarious trauma amongst prosecutors um, is a, is a, a very real danger. There's a recent High Court decision um, arising from uh, prosecution practice in Victoria. Um, so we have a range of initiatives um, to care for our prosecutors to ensure that they're not uh, that that type of trauma is minimised and. They range from the way we manage our briefs. For example, um, we don't have videos, distressing videos, routinely provided to prosecutors. They are kept in a separate area and they're only viewed um, if necessary. We don't reproduce distressing autopsy photos in all of our briefs. We certainly don't let our prosecutors watch child pornography in matters of that kind. Uh, So we limit the the primary trauma as far as we possibly can. Um, We make sure, I make sure that prosecutors have a range of um, matters briefed to them so that they're not relentlessly doing homicides or shaken baby cases or child sexual assaults. We try to mix it up and regularly brief them in matters that don't have a physical victim, for example, like a fraud matter or a drug supply matter. Um, so that they get some time out from the often very distressing um, personal uh, nature of maintaining a relationship with a victim in or a victim's family in a trial or a sentence. We have vicarious formal vicarious trauma training that all prosecutors are required to do when they start working for us. Um, I just introduced a clinical supervision pilot program, which I expect will be rolled out um, across the organisation on a and will be part of our compulsory um, well-being. That involves every 12 weeks a a clinical supervision session with a trained psychologist who's been briefed on the type of work that we do. Um, We also have a range of initiatives available in-house and uh, all of our managing solicitors have uh, qualified in mental health health checks so that they can identify red flags within their teams. Mm Gender balance in the legal profession is an ongoing issue. Uh, how's the DPP faring in terms of gender balance? We are doing very well. <laughs> We're doing much better than the private profession. Um, over 60% of our solicitors are women. The, the, the numbers are lower for Crown prosecutors. I think it's currently about 40%, um, principally because many of our um, gifted female Crown prosecutors are regularly appointed to judicial positions. Yes, snaffles by the, the bench. Yeah. I don't get to hang on to them for long enough. Yeah. Well, I suppose that's perhaps inevitable if the talent shows through and the state says, no, come and work for us. Yes. Yeah. Very frustrating. Sally, um, thank you for um, sparing your time for us today and what's been a very interesting uh, in chat. Uh, and uh, I, I look forward to everyone enjoying the insights into your office as well as an understanding of the Crown Troll in Sensi. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me on. You have been listening to Sally Dowling, the New South Wales Director of Public Prosecutions. This podcast, Sentencing Explained, is brought to you by the New South Wales Sentencing Council. The teacher's guide to the podcast and further information about the council is available on the Sentencing Council's website. I'm Peter McClellan. Thank you for listening.